kicked off a series last week called Kings, and many of you were gone last week because it was Memorial Day weekend. And so I just want to kind of set things up again for you with this series. Uh, in Kings, all we're doing is we're going through uh, some of the kings that go from David to Jesus, in the line of David and in the line of Jesus, okay? So we're just going through some of their lives and beginning to dig in and see what we might see. Last week, there are a couple things I mentioned that I need to bring up again this week. Number one, I personally have a preference, and that preference is this, that as we gather together, we don't just get together and, and, and we, you just see what's happening on stage. I, I really prefer to be much more participatory than that. Participatory. I also prefer that as I'm reading through the scriptures, that I'm not the only one who's got a Bible in front of me. Okay? My preference is that we wouldn't just see the scriptures up on the screen and have them kind of disconnected from the context around it. But my preference is that each and every one of us would have Bibles in front of us. And when I was the youth pastor at Praise, I had the same preference, and I told those kids, listen, bring your Bibles to church. I know it's a novel idea, but bring your Bibles to church. I mean, it's the one place that maybe we should bring our Bibles to. And so um, even as we were, uh, as I was a youth pastor, we would do this. Well, I understand that for some of us, that's, that's a little bit more of a struggle. It's easier to see the words on the screen than to have, and some of us need reading glasses, and so you have to go back and forth while, while the pastor's preaching. And so I understand that, and, and normally we'll just have the scriptures up on the screen. But every now and then, I like to do a series where I get to do it my way. Thank you. So this series, we're doing my way, okay? So just at the beginning of summer, if you would, during this series, bring your Bible to church with you, okay? So that as we're reading through the scriptures, I know that you're reading through it just right along with me. We're not just seeing it up on the screens. If for some reason you don't have a Bible, talk to me after service. I will get you a Bible, okay? And if for some reason you forget your Bible, man, no biggie. We've got Bibles that are spread out throughout the seats today. You can reach over and grab them. That's that black book that's in the seat in front of you, around you, behind you, somewhere. There's a Bible right in your general area that's not a hymn book. It's a Bible. It will not bite you when you reach to grab it. So if for some reason you forget your Bible, just reach over and grab one of those Bibles. And once you have a Bible today, would you open it up to 2 Chronicles chapter 17? 2 Chronicles chapter 17. So last week we kicked off this series by going through the king or reading through the life of King Asa. Uh, Asa was the great-great-grandson of David. Um, he was a good king. He was king for like 41 years. He did well, and, and, and maybe he could have ended a bit better, but in general, he was a good king. Um, Asa, uh, uh, in, as you read through his story, you can see mistakes made. Most of those, unfortunately, were made at the end of his life. But as we were reading through this passage last week in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, there was one verse in particular which set the foundation, set up the rest of this series. And that's in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. There it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart 
is blameless toward him. So the word there that's blameless could mean that hearts that are whole towards him. He is looking to and fro. He is seeking those who are seeking him. And that's what I think this entire series is going to be about. We never know for sure as the Holy Spirit moves, but it seems like that's the way that he's leading with this series. And I believe that that sets up then God is seeking those who are seeking him. Okay? Well, Asa has a son. And we're talking about that son today. This is Jehoshaphat. And that is in chapter 17. Second Chronicles chapter 17. We find the beginning of Jehoshaphat's reign. Um, and so this is one more removed from King David. He's one more step down the line. Another 40 years uh, removed from King David. So here we are. Second Chronicles chapter 17. Verse 1. Here's what it says. Jehoshaphat, his son reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa his father had captured. Verse 3. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. So Jehoshaphat was a good king. This is like the report card, and every single one of the stories of the kings begins with this like really brief report card, and here's the one for Jehoshaphat, and it says he was a good king. In fact, it goes so far as to say that he walked in the earlier ways of his father, David. Okay, that is, David is like the gold standard by which the kings are measured against. I'm not saying he did everything right. What I am saying is that he was after God's own heart. And so there are three kings, only three kings of Judah, of which it says that they walked in the earlier ways of his father David, and Jehoshaphat is one of them. So he was a good king. He was one of the best kings. I mean, if he's not the best, he's at least the runner-up. At worst, he's Miss Congeniality, okay? So he is a good king. But even though he's a good king, doesn't mean he doesn't make mistakes. Chapter 18 contains those mistakes. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. Okay, last week, I mentioned to you, and many of you were gone, I mentioned to you last week that in in Chronicles, after Solomon, that that the nation splintered. Okay, when we talk about that kind of thing, a lot of times we have no, I say it, but you don't hear it because you don't see it. So what we're going to do today is something that we do on Wednesday nights, and it's not going to be to the same degree, but on Wednesday nights we do a little bit more thorough Bible study. But I want to show you a map today. And this is the map, it should show up on the screen behind me. This is the map of, of the nation of Israel and Judah, and you don't have to see all that you're going to see eventually a map. Um, the nation of Israel and Judah, and you don't have to recognize all of the, the, the names at this point. But here's what I want you to see. All of this stuff, during David and, and, and Solomon's reign, this was all one nation. Okay? All of it except for, like, this little area up here. Okay? All of it except for a tiny, tiny little sliver was one nation. But here we are, 100 years after, uh, after Solomon, or David, after Solomon was king, and, and, and we're like 60 years after he died, and it's split up into all of these different parts. 
Now, the reason why was after Solomon died, the north, the ten tribes in the north split off, said, we don't want to follow the line of King David, and they formed Israel, what will be called Israel. That's this northern section here. The southern two tribes said, listen, we're sticking with the line of Judah, or the line of, of David, and they formed what became Judah. But all of this used to be Israel. In fact, it extended far to the north, and it extended far to the south. But at this point, things have splintered. And as a result, there's constantly like fighting between Israel and Judah. And the reason for that is this. If these are split, and the center of worship, Jerusalem, is in the south, then people who are in the north say, well, wait a second, the center of worship is in the south. And so the north and the south become at odds because the, the north doesn't want their people to move to the south, and so they hold out, and they, the, Israel then goes to kind of head-to-head with Judah, okay? And as a result, they also set up a foreign worship. They immediately after the split... Uh, Jeroboam says, listen, um, what we need to do is we need to make our own religion. And they bring out two golden calves and they say, okay, Israel, here's your God who brought you out of Egypt. They set up this foreign worship and immediately begin to fall away from God. Even further north over here is what we talked about last week is Syria. If you didn't listen to the message or if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. That, That was the foundational message. So just as much as Israel is fighting against Judah. They're also fighting against Syria. And so this is the splintered nations that we're talking about here. Now, if Jehoshaphat is one of the greatest kings of Judah, Ahab is the worst king of Israel, literally. 1 Kings chapter 16 says that very thing. It says that he did more evil than all of the kings before him. And the kings before him did a whole lot of evil. Okay, so Ahab is not a good guy. Jehoshaphat, when he becomes the king of Judah, decides to bury the hatchet with Israel. He decides to make peace. But then he gets a little too cozy. And that's what happens in chapter 18. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor And he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria. And Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him. And induced him to go up against Ramoth Gilead. Ramoth Gilead was right on the border with Syria. And so it was in a battle with Syria. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to Ramoth Gilead? And he answered him, I am as you are. My people, as your people, we will be with you in this war. Okay, chapter 18 contains this great defeat. Jehoshaphat and Ahab were warned by a prophet. If you go, Ahab, you're going to die. You will be defeated. They go anyways. They're defeated. Ahab dies. Jehoshaphat has to limp back to Jerusalem. Chapter 18, read it sometime, is the greatest defeat of Jehoshaphat's reign. And it contains those great mistakes. But it's not the biggest mistake. The biggest mistake is verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. And he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. The marriage alliance this is talking about 
was Jehoshaphat takes his son, whose name is Jehoram, and has him get married to Ahab and his wife, name is Jezebel, might have heard of that name once or twice, their daughter, whose name is Athaliah. I would not call her a lady. Athaliah is a bad person. In fact, it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 6, that because of her, Jehoram does evil. Okay? Jehoram ends up becoming power-hungry. After Jehoshaphat's death, Jehoram kills every single one of his brothers, which happens a lot in the northern kingdom, does not happen in Judah. Because this is the line of David we're talking about. Athaliah becomes like this black widow of Judah. It's bloodshed for generations afterwards because of her. And Jehoshaphat never has any idea because it all happens after him. But that's a story for another day. The story for today is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It says in verse 1, Jehoshaphat uh, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, After this, and so after this, we know this is coming right after his, his great defeat uh, in chapter 18. So we know right when this happens. This happens sometime between 853 and 851 BC. Which means at this point, Jehoshaphat is very advanced in age. And actually, right after his defeat, his son Jehoram um, becomes co-regent with him. Now, we don't know exactly how that happens. We don't know if it's a power move on Jehoram's part. We do know Jehoram is power hungry. And after his weakest moment, Jehoshaphat's biggest failure, his son becomes co-regent with him. Co-king, I guess you could call it. And so Jehoshaphat here is advanced in years. He's going to die within three years of this moment, what we're reading right now. So he's older. He's got a son who's power hungry, who's co-regent with him. It says this is what happens. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Muonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Okay, so... Um, when we read these kinds of things and you hear all of these names, like, you don't have context for it. And you read it and you're like, okay, what? Who's the Muonites? Who's the Moabites? What's the Ammonites? And where's En Gedi? Okay, so that's part of what I wanted to show you today. And again, we're not going to do a lot with this. Normally on Wednesday nights, we're going through a study on Exodus right now and we get more in depth. If you're interested in that kind of thing, show up on Wednesday night. I know you would enjoy it. But I want to just walk you through what this is talking about. So it says that there's three nations that come against him. And one of those is Ammon, uh, the Ammonites. The other one is Moab, the Moabites. And then there's this third one called the Muonites. We have no idea who the Muonites are. We just don't know. Later on in the chapter, it refers to them as Mount Seir. Well, we do know where Mount Seir is. In fact, it's down here, right along Judah's southern border. There's this mountain range. And probably what it's referring to then is this people, Mount Seir. Excuse me, that was a little wild. Mount Seir um, is right in this area. And, and so this is probably then the Muonites, okay? So it says these three nations come against Judah. And it says that he's in Jerusalem and some men come to him and said, this great multitude is coming against you and guess where they are? They're in the En Gedi. They're in En Gedi. Which if you look at, is all the way up here in the heart of Judah. 
I mean, they are within striking distance of Jerusalem. In fact, from Jerusalem to En Gedi, it's 25 miles. That's two days. So after this, this crowd or this, these group of nations come up against Jerusalem, they're two days away. And in fact, we know, later on in the chapter, it tells us that they meet them in a place called the Desert of Tekoa. Okay? Where are they going to? They're headed to Jerusalem. And they are getting close. And really, this is a brilliant move on their part. The, the, the strategic, the military strategy is perfect. Because here, read it again. It says in verse 1, after this, the Muonites and the Ammonites and with them some of, or the Am- Moabites and the Ammonites and some of the Muonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom. Who are those men? Well, probably they're people who were in the city of En Gedi who had to run, and so they head off to Jerusalem to let him know, listen, there's a huge army coming against you. And guess what? They're two days away. In fact, the strategy here, there's some question based on even the language that is used. There's some who think that right here, this little peninsula here is called the Lizan Peninsula. If you go to Israel today, the Dead Sea is not one sea. It's actually separated by this land because it's, it's, it's dropped. The water, val- the water levels has dropped enough that you can walk right across here. You've got the North Dead Sea and the South Dead Sea. And there is some who believe that when it says that they come into the land, that it's talking about that the water was down enough that they forded the Dead Sea and came up. And before you know it, they're in the En So here's Jehoshaphat, and there's this brilliant military strategy, and before they can do anything about it, they're in the heart of Judah, two days from Jerusalem, and you know where they're going to. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Muonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Wait a second. That's not what you want to hear from your king. The whole point in having a king is that when you're afraid... When you're in the, like, crouch down, hide in a corner mode, that the king is the one who's like, we got this. It's the whole point in having a king. But Jehoshaphat is afraid. And then he set his face. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face. Now that is a king. I love that turn of phrase. He set his face face like it gives this impression of grinding his teeth his jawline gets well defined and that's what you look for in a king if you ask me alan pick out a king i'm gonna look for somebody with a good jawline because you know that's a kingly person he sets his face so okay the afraid part not so much the setting his face part okay i get this jehoshaphat he set his face he's got a good jawline So he sets his face. 
he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Okay, so the enemy's two days away, so the only way this could have worked is if they like sent out riders in all directions. And not sending out riders to gather the army. He sends out riders to declare a fast in Judah. Now, do you really want to be fasting right before you go into battle? Like, isn't that when you want to be eating your Wheaties? Isn't that when you want to up your caloric intake? Isn't that when you want to make sure that, hey, we're not going into battle with our stomachs grumbling? But Jehoshaphat set his face to seek the Lord, and he declares a fast. He sends out these riders to Judah, and the people begin to come into Jerusalem. They just begin to flood into Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Verse 5, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem. In the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers. He begins to pray. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Verse 10. And now behold. The men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. So this is a beautiful prayer, right? Jehoshaphat stands in front of everybody and he begins to pray and he, he zooms out from the issue and he starts by saying, a hundred years ago we dedicated this temple to you and you made the promise that if there's ever pestilence or famine or somebody attacking us, if we come to this place and we cry out to you, God, that you will hear and you will save us. So he zooms out from the problem and looks back to this promise that God made. And then he zooms out even further. And he actually says, and God, you're the one who gave us this land to begin with. And these nations that are coming against us, see, apparently Jehoshaphat knew the Bible. He knew the revelation that he had because he brings up Deuteronomy chapter 2, which again, I encourage you to read at some point. But in Deuteronomy chapter 2, there are three nations which are listed. It says, do not invade these. When you guys come out of Egypt, do not attack these three nations. One, two, and three. You know what those three nations are? Moab, Ammon, and Mount Seir. So Jehoshaphat hears that this is the people who are coming against him. And he says, now wait a second, God. You told us not to invade these people. And now they're coming against us 
in this land that you gave to us. So he zooms out from the problem, and he looks at it in relation to the promise that God has made, and then he zooms out even a little bit further, and he looks at it in part of the the larger story of what God has done. Okay? But he still hasn't asked for anything in this prayer. That comes next. Verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. He said, you hear me, and I, want, I, I seek, and I ask that you would make a decision against them and for us. He says, because on our own, we're helpless. Brilliant military strategy. We have no time to react. All we can do is seek your face, God. And then he ends this prayer with this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then verse 13 says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Now, wait a second. I thought that these people, these nations were coming against Jerusalem. What in the world are the women and children doing in Jerusalem? Isn't this the time that you should send them off to the country? And it doesn't even just say women and children. This is the only time you see this turn of phrase in in the Chronicles. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. They even got the babies there still. And so he prays this prayer and he says, God, we do not know what to do. Our eyes are on you. And you can picture it. I can picture it right now that they're all standing there in Jerusalem waiting with their kids, with their wives, with their babies. They don't send them off to the country. They don't tell them, go cry in a dark corner somewhere. And and. I mean, at least send the kids, right? We want to protect the kids. We, don't, we, we always want to protect the kids. Like, we don't tell them what's going on in our lives sometimes because we don't want them to worry. Like, we, don't, we discuss things after they go to bed because of the fact that we don't want them to have nightmares. The other day, we had those tornado warnings. We went downstairs to our shelter. We had the TV on. And we, we, we were tracking the path of the storm, and our kids were asking us questions about what is a tornado and all of those things. And now every time it starts to rain, Asher's looking out the window saying, Daddy, I think I see a tornado. We don't want that. We want to protect them. And yet at the same time, and I'm saying this with, we need to have wisdom about it, but sometimes I wonder if because we work so hard to protect our kids, they don't witness the faithfulness of God. Like, we set up memorials after the fact, but then they don't get to see God's faithfulness in the fact. I wonder if sometimes we should let them walk through it with us so that they will never forget the faithfulness of God that they themselves have witnessed. Guarantee you these kids never forgot this moment in Judah. Guarantee you they remembered this forever. Because they were right there with their parents. I'm not saying in every situation, but maybe, maybe we should reassess that plan a little bit. But here they are standing before the Lord. And this is a beautiful, rich chapter. They stand there, 
And then in verse 14, you hear a prophetic word that comes back. And it says, this is not your battle. This is God's battle. And the Lord will fight it. You won't need to fight. So the next morning, or actually right afterwards, they bow down and worship. And then one of them stands up. Some of them stand up and begin to praise and worship God. The next morning, they send the people out, but they send out the singers first. You've probably heard one or ten sermons on it, but, but they send out the singers in advance, and as they begin to worship God, verse 21 contains the song that they sing. Here's what they sing. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. They don't sing a worship song about God as their mighty warrior. You know what they're singing right here? These words that they're singing are covenant words. They're singing a song about their covenant-keeping God. And as they begin to worship their covenant-keeping God, God sets ambushes for the enemy. By the time they meet them in that desert of Tekoa, they're all, there's nothing left but the plundering. So they rename that valley the Valley of Blessing. They come back in with the trumpets and lyres and praising God. Beautiful, rich chapter. But you know what I can't get past? Verse 12 and 13. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Like, I, I picture it. Them standing there. How long does it take from the beginning of verse 13 to the beginning of verse 14? When the prophetic word comes. How long does it take? We don't know. But they're standing there. And their eyes are on God. In our study on Wednesday nights in Exodus, we just came through and read that passage of scripture where they're standing at the Red Sea. And behind them is coming the Egyptians. And in front of them is this pillar of fire and smoke, which is the manifest presence of God. And you know what they do? They turn their back on the manifest presence of God, and they stare at the Egyptians. They turn their back on God, and they look at the problem. And here in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, they are in the path of the enemy. Here comes this great horde. And they have turned their back to the enemy and are staring at God. Men, women, children, and babies. They say, we don't know what to do, God. But our eyes are on you. What I love about this is that if we go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, that passage I read at the beginning today and focused on last week. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is whole towards him. So, if we're looking at God, and God is looking at us, 
That means we're looking each other right in the eyes. And I have to tell you that when you lock eyes with somebody, you can communicate a whole lot. When Liz locks eyes with me and says, come hither, without saying a thing, I say, time for bed, kids. Three in the afternoon. Doesn't matter. When my kids are struggling with something and they can't get it on their own, and they say, I can't do it, I can't do it. I say, stop and look at me. And they kind of look towards me. And I said, no, look at me. And I say, you can do it. Because you can communicate a whole lot when you're looking somebody in the eyes. It's the same reason why every usher and every greeter this morning as you walked in the doors looked you in the eyes and said, you belong here. So if they're looking at God and God is looking at them and they are looking right into his eyes and what does he say? I've got this. They turn their back to the enemy. They say, I don't know what to do, oh God but my eyes are on you. You know what we're doing this morning? That exact same thing. And I don't know why you came to church today. I certainly hope that it wasn't in order that you might check mark a certain box. I sure hope that church hasn't become just a check mark to you. I certainly hope it's more than that. Because what we do this morning is we turn our back on the crises, on the problems, on the issues, on our week, which is difficult. We turn our eyes upon God and we say, I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. That's what church is about. And so we're going to have a time of worship now. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up. And this morning, as we do, there's a couple of things I want to say. Because you might be in the midst of something. And, and, and really, to be very clear, do you think it's interesting that it's, God waited until, until they began to worship him to set ambushes for the enemy? Do you think that there might be a reason why Satan worked so hard to get us as a church to not be a worshiping church? Do you think there's a reason why Satan worked so hard to make you as a person not be a worshiping person? I do. Because I think there's something that happens when we worship. And so this morning, as we go into worship, there are some people in here who may need to, like figuratively, like mentally, get an image in your brain of turning your back on your problems and your eyes upon God. And I promise you this morning that if you do that, as we worship, that he is looking right back at you 
you will never see the back of God's head. You're not gonna catch him pacing in heaven. If someone's looking at the backside of somebody else's head, he's looking at the back of our head because we're watching the issues and the problems and not focusing on him. And if right now there's a problem that's heavy in your heart, and maybe it was even as you were worshiping earlier, you couldn't get away from the distractions and you couldn't get away from the problems and you couldn't get away from the issues, let me just say to you with all grace and mercy, turn around. Stop looking at that. Turn your eyes to God. You might need to say, I don't know what to do, oh God, but my eyes are on you. And that's what we're going to do right now. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And if you're in here this morning, and maybe you came to church today, and you were just like, man, I don't know if today's going to be any different than all the Sundays that have gone before, and I don't know if this church is going to be any different, and I don't know if this time is going to be different, or if God is going to receive me. Let me just say to you that you may think you're looking for God. Turns out that God is looking for you. And there is a reason why you are here this morning. Because he has been looking for you for some time. And if you have not received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, what that means is if you've not declared that Jesus is Lord and received salvation, if you've not believed that God raised him from the dead and you have not received salvation, if your eternal security is not secure this morning, then today is the day And this is the place. And even as we begin to worship our God, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you. And some people may say, I need to physically show my back to my problems and turn my eyes upon God. And maybe they'll come down to these stairs at the front. But I'm going to ask you that if you're in that place and you need someone to pray with you and walk you through what those steps look like, I'm just going to ask you to come to this center area down here, and that'll indicate to our prayer team, this is somebody I need to pray with for salvation. So just come down to this little area right down here, and they would love to pray with you today. As the leader of this church, as the pastor, I just want to pray over us right now. I want to pray over what's about to happen. And I want to declare to God what is happening in our hearts. Would you join with me in that? Father, as the pastor of this church, we set our faces to seek you this morning. God, as the pastor of this church, let me tell you, you know already, but let me just declare what is happening in this room right now. All across this room, people are turning from the problems, are turning from the crises, are turning from the issues, and they are turning their eyes upon you. Right now, in this moment, during this prayer, there are some who are imagining themselves turning their back to their problem and turning their eyes upon you, oh God. And during this time of our worship, I'm not saying we got it all figured out. In fact, I'm saying we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, God. Our eyes are on you. And Lord, we know that if our eyes are on you, your eyes are on us. 
And this morning you might speak during this time of worship deeply into someone's heart. I've got this. Do not worry. Turn your back to that. Turn your face to me. And remember, the battle is mine. Holy Spirit, we need you today. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And Lord, we need the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place today. We need your power because everything else, God, is a moot point if not for your presence. So work in us even as we worship you, O oh Lord, as we turn our eyes upon you, O oh God. Minister among us, we ask. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. He's coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah, his chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb oh every knee will bow before him hallelujah hallelujah lord we worship you we worship you oh god glory to your name thank you jesus thank you jesus the gates, make way before the King of Kings, our God who comes to save is here to set the captives free, for who can stop the Lord Almighty, our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah, He's roaring with power.
worship you. Glory to your precious name, oh God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord, we worship you. Thank you, God. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you. 